0: The poetic notion that humankind is formed out of the earth, is made from clay, is an ancient and widespread one. The Egyptian god, Hanem, his symbol is a potter's wheel because he fashions people from clay and places them in, his mother's, in the mother's womb. Considering that the Nile annually flooded, the waters brought thick silt and new growth, so imagining life from mud makes perfect sense. The goddess, niu fashions people out of yellow clay in Chinese mythology. After she carefully builds several hundred, she grows tired, and she begins splattering mud around, and the droplets turn into the humans who will become workers. Now, there's a creation story that helps explain social hierarchy, the haves versus the have-nots, common laborers versus the noble class. And then out of the Greek pantheon of gods, Prometheus creates humans from clay. And the ancient Babylonian and Mesopotamian legends that are the underpinnings of the Bible describe divinities making humans from mud and clay. So the depiction of Yahweh in Genesis, forming Adam from the soil, and then blowing life into him through his nostrils is a vivid, yet borrowed image. Anyone today who farms, gardens, or works with clay can feel that ancient connection with the earth as a source of life, of creation itself. If you've accepted a crude vessel that used to be ashtrays, but now not, made by a child from clay, you know that you are accepting a precious gift of creation. In today's reading, we dipped into Genesis after the creation of Adam and Eve, just when the formation of the heavens and the earths and everything upon it is complete and perfect. It's a very brief moment in the story. We do not get to linger in the time when there is no want, no need, or disgrace, or embarrassment. Once it is reported Adam and Eve were nude, yet they were not ashamed, a new character that will change everything is introduced. So, allow me to pause to extend this fleeting flawlessness, this depiction of the Garden of Eden as perfection, has captured the imagination of artists, philosophers, theologians, and readers alike. And if you're like me, it's a compelling metaphor for the outcome of any creative effort. I can so easily picture before I start something how fabulous everything will be, only to quickly get bogged down once I've actually begun and nothing goes as I imagine. Ever. Ever. Now that writing a weekly sermon is part of the rhythm of my life, I often think of what television writer and author Sidney Shelton said. A blank piece of paper is God's way of telling us how hard it is to be God. (laughs) So can I stop right here and tell you that all the brilliant versions of this sermon I have in my head never flowed out through my keyboard onto my computer screen. So, since I can't deliver the perfect sermon, can I just sit down right now? (laughs) We might be better off. (laughs) But, if the creation story in the Bible ended in the exquisite bliss of the Garden of Eden, I doubt the scribes would have bothered writing the stories down so we could listen to them and discuss them 3,000 years later. Instead, everything changes when the serpent talks. For me, and maybe for the scribes too, this new element is really when creation begins. Often apologists in the Christian tradition simplify the role of the serpent as pure Satan, a single source of sin and evil, that explains our own damning shortcomings and might explain whether you like this sermon or not, and our wholesale removal from God's graces. For me, a more interesting interpretation comes from the insights of Carl Jung and his depiction of archetypes, those universal, unchanging patterns and images that shape our collective unconscious. One of these archetypes is the trickster, Traditionally, tricksters are a bundle of contradictions rolled into a single character. They have enormous capacity for lust and sensuality as well as a hearty appetite for the forbidden. Trickster archetypes have divine powers yet are irreverent and profane. In many tales of their exploits, the trickster's deception consists of feigning ignorance while laying a trap for their adversaries. They possess the uncanny ability ability of frustrating the supreme being's creative plans. For example, back to Prometheus, he's a Greek trickster who defies the gods and steals fire for the humans. Tricksters are both human-like and animal-like, Both the Native American trickster coyote and the southern trickster Brer rabbit use words and wits to dismantle and rearrange social structures. So in Genesis, the serpent in the Garden of Eden easily fits into Jung's archetype, blurring the boundaries between animal, human, and divine. The snake speaks and knows more fully Yahweh's mind than Yahweh himself die, you will not die. Rather, God knows that on the day that you eat from the tree of knowing, your eyes will be opened and you will become like gods, knowing good and evil. Although we don't really ever find out or know the serpent's motivation, like all tricksters, he creates mischief. He seems to be a destructive force of chaos unraveling the very fabric of creation. While many interpretations of Genesis depict this drama as a tragedy, as a fall from God's grace, as the introduction of sin and pain into the world, according to Jung, the trickster archetype is associated with wisdom and the beginnings of spiritual endeavor. Once Eve takes the serpent at his word, and both Adam and Eve bite into the apple, the eyes of the two of them are opened. Centuries of theology have focused on their knowing they were naked. But in all spiritual traditions I'm aware of, having your eyes opened is a good thing. The term Buddha means the awakened one the one whose eyes are opened. So accepting new information and learning, eating from the tree of knowing is an unwavering foundational tenet of Unitarian Universalism. We insist that you can enter our churches around the world and share with others a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. It is one of our seven principles. We believe in a whole Orchard of trees of knowing with not just Jewish and Christian fruit. Pluck wisdom from the world's religions. Ingest humanist teachings. Reach for awareness of earth-centered traditions. Sample the words and deeds of prophetic women and men. Gather and store your own direct experiences of mystery and wonder. We use are not snake handlers, but rather we could be called friends of the snake. We insist upon a banquet from tree of, the tree of knowing and heartily accept the invitation to bite into the apple. If it were not for the trickster serpent and Eve's daring, we would be stuck in paradise and kept as innocent as children I will take the messy possibilities of life outside Eden anytime over the stifling limits of someone else's notion of perfection, even if that someone else is supposedly God. So I question if Yahweh's pronouncements really are curses upon Adam and Eve or simply honest assessments of what it means to be human and not be God, not be the center of everything, not be all-powerful. Once Adam and Eve's eyes are open, they can see they have no clothing. The roots of the word shame arise from words meaning to cover. So the impulse to cover oneself literally or figuratively is a natural expression of shame. And over time, religious authorities have taken the nakedness literally and used it to distort notions of sexuality and human bodies. So instead, let's reclaim the notion that being awake enough to recognize shame is the beginning of wisdom and spiritual growth. I value the writings of Dr. Brené Brown, who is a research professor in the field of social work. She studies vulnerability, courage, worthiness and shame and she writes that shame is about fear we are biologically emotionally socially and cognitively wired for connection for many there is also a deep need for spiritual connection shame is about fear of disconnection when we are experiencing shame we are steeped in the fear of being ridiculed, diminished or seen as flawed. We're afraid that we've exposed or revealed a part of us that jeopardizes our connection and our worthiness of acceptance. For me, that sensation of shame is a warm flush to my face, a lump in my chest, and a temptation to fix things when I break something. These feelings are intensified when I break a valuable object that belongs to someone else. (laughs) As children, we're taught to feel ashamed if we break something. And as parents and grandparents, we try to teach children to feel remorse so they can begin to take responsibility for their actions. Our aim is to help them begin to clean up their messes and to repair not only the broken object, but also the relationship that may have been damaged. We teach him to say, I'm very sorry I broke your vase. Through the work of Dr. Brown and others, it becomes clear that shame is the seed for developing empathy, for remaking connections. It takes practice to reconnect in a world without the perfections of the Garden of Eden. Brown writes, Empathy is essential for building meaningful, trusting relationships, which is something we all want and need. Given its key role in building many different types of connections, empathy is something we would all be wise to learn and to practice. one of the defining attributes of empathy is being able to see the world as others see it. With their eyes opened, Adam and Eve could see the full humanity in themselves and each other, including their nakedness. Since they never got to eat from the second tree, the tree of life, their eyes are opened and opened to their own death, their own limitations, and to the death and limitations of others. Death is the ultimate severed relationship. It takes enormous empathy to push aside the fear and shame of death to attend to our own frailties and to others. I was not going to forget that I had broken this cup. I've been taught to clean up my messes and to make apologies. I am so sorry, Joe Staskel, I broke your cup, your vase. Yet we come from a culture where this story in Genesis is often used to teach that we must avoid testing limits and avoid being broken. Orthodoxy claims that Yahweh punishes those who break vows and commitments. Instead of that interpretation, I'm making the case that the authentic creation story begins when Perfection dissolves, a snake speaks, and a human reaches out for the unknown, leaving behind certain comfort to accept the limits of death, creation and destruction, birth and death must go hand in hand. Knowing is not possible without the death of old ideas." So let me pull together these ideas with a story that comes from Asia. It is said that back in the 15th century, the shogun Ashikaga Yoshimasa sent a favorite damaged Chinese tea bowl back to China to be fixed. It returned held together with ugly metal staples. The shogun turned to his best Japanese craftsman sending them on a quest for a new form of repair that could make a broken piece look as good as new or better. After experimenting with many methods, they settled on mixing a lacquer resin with precious metals. They glued the tea bowl back together, and the lines where it was broken became veins of gold. The bowl was now more beautiful and precious than before. Yoshimasa was delighted. This style of pottery was named kintsugi, or golden joinery. Japanese collectors developed such a taste for kintsugi that some were accused of deliberately breaking prized ceramics just to have them mended in gold. So using the story metaphorically, I'm going to ask you to take a moment to name for yourself something that feels broken in your life, a broken relationship, a severed tie, a loss from death, a shameful action or banishment, and I'll give you a moment to think of one as I consider my own places of brokenness. Now consider how you might refashion what feels most broken in your life in an entirely unexpected way, one that makes it even more beautiful. I'm not suggesting you reconnect with any relationships that cause you harm, but I'm inviting you to consider what might be the vein of gold for creating a new vessel from that which is broken taking a lesson from Genesis, true life begins once we let go of notions of perfection and reach out for something new. We indeed are broken in many ways, but that's as it should be, as it must be. What matters is what we do after we have taken a bite from the apple, accepted responsibility, and gained knowledge. This step toward wisdom only comes when we have taken that risk. It only comes when our eyes are open to the real workings of the world. Since we've been driven out of the Garden of Eden, our task is to remake connections and to create things that are more beautiful for having been broken. May it be so.